Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations, and the countdown to midterms is on. With less than three weeks to go, many questions remain, and the stakes couldn't be higher. How high? According to my guest today, quote, the nature of our democracy is on the ballot. I'm not sure I disagree. You may remember Richard Clark for his 30 years serving in the U.S. government, including 10 continuous years as a White House official, serving three consecutive presidents as Special Assistant to the President for Global Affairs, Special Advisor to the President for Cyberspace, and National Coordinator for Security and Counterterrorism. His very first book back in 2004 was a New York Times number one bestseller, and he has since stood on the front lines warning us about the risks and realities of cyber attacks and more. Now, he's got a new outlet, a podcast. Come on, who doesn't have a podcast these days? His is called Future State. The 10-episode run started last month and ends the day before the midterms. Once you're done listening to all of my podcasts, I really recommend listening to Clark's. I'm just kidding, of course. You don't have to listen to all of my conversations first, just most of them. Clark and I discussed the important news of the day, Jamal Khashoggi, Saudi Arabia, Russia, China, and of course, cyber. I really think you'll like it. Can I tell you about something else I really think you'll like? What are you doing on October 26th at 4 p.m. Eastern? Why not join me at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government for my live podcast event, Midterms 18, Blue Wave or Red Save? It's going to be a terrific show and important conversation right in their famous forum location. Our confirmed panelists are Rick Wilson, Republican political strategist and number one New York Times bestselling author of Everything Trump Touches Dies. Asha Rangappa is a CNN legal and national security commentator, former FBI agent, and senior lecturer at Yale University. Tegan Goddard, of course, is Political Wire publisher, and Claire Malone is 538 senior political writer and a panelist on their weekly 538 politics podcast. And good news, if you can't get to the event live, we'll have a live video stream on politicalwire.com, and I'll drop the whole thing as a podcast after the event. I'd love to see you October 26th, 4 p.m. at the famous Harvard Kennedy School Forum. Finally, before we begin, I want to remind you about our show's terrific sponsor, the Cook Political Report, and a special offer for our listeners to get an 18% discount off all subscriptions. You already know, people who want to stay ahead of the curve turn to the Cook Political Report and with good reason. For 30 years, the report has nailed the nation's most important election outcomes and political trends. People who make it their business to know politics make it their business to subscribe to the Cook Political Report. And for Political Wire listeners, a special offer. You can use the code POLITICALWIRE to get 18% off all subscriptions. Just go to cookpolitical.com and use the code POLITICALWIRE, that's one word, POLITICALWIRE, to sign up and get 18% off all subscriptions. That's cookpolitical.com, code POLITICALWIRE. Okay, that's it. Here's my conversation with Richard Clark. Dick, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. Well, pleasure to be with you, Chris. So you have served a number of U.S. presidents, written eight books, uh, at least eight books, I guess, including a number one bestseller. You've been an on-air consultant for years. You've got an uh, international risk consulting business, and that wasn't enough for you. Now you have to come after us podcasters with your terrific offering also. It's, it, it's, not, it's not a fair fight, Dick. Well, you know, podcasts are the way people communicate these days. As you know, you're I, doing it. I know, but uh, I, I thought we had one bit of ground where you hadn't, you know, you, you hadn't opened an offensive yet. Well, you know, I may be an old guy, but I can, uh, I can modernize, you know. Uh, 
I, I think the most effective way, if you have something to say these days, is not to be on the nightly news. I did that for 15 years yeah. uh, and with ABC, and then one day I looked at the demographics and realized that everyone I was talking to was my age or older. Mm. Um, so... I thought it's time to change. Yeah, okay, well, we, we've got them. We've got them of all uh, the, the whole range, and uh, you know, you, you're characterizing yourself of a, a certain demographic that uh, you know. I would say, you know, we we go for regard regardless of uh, of age. It's the uh, the mental strength that we're going for, and uh, you know, you've you've done a lot of important thinking and doing uh, in all sorts of media over the years and uh, in all sorts of roles. So um, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting to talk with you. I want to talk about the Future State podcast um, because you're, some of the points that you've made about why you're doing it and, you know, the state of our democracy and, and the, you know, the, the, what the future holds, what we're really voting on um, is important stuff. And I, I want to ask you about that. I want to ask you about uh, American foreign policy generally, of course, um, the state of our democracy, um, but but the big uh, you know I, I can't kind of have uh, someone like you on the the conversation um, and not talk about Jamal Khashoggi, um, Mohammed bin Salman, Saudi Arabia, and us. Um, and so you know, first of all, surely by the time this podcast airs, um, we're talking uh, Thursday just after noon New York time, um, and I'm sure you know within hours everything is changing. But at this point, do we? Internally, just given your experience from government, do we know everything that happened? And I don't mean publicly, but I mean, has someone listened to the tapes that Turkey says it has? Um, how, how much does the CIA or Security Council know at this point, in your estimation? My uh, my guess, and it's only that because I'm not in government anymore. Uh, but my guess is that we know pretty much everything. Uh, and that between NSA and CIA, they've been collecting a lot of information. The Turks have undoubtedly uh, passed on what they have, which is apparently chilling. Yeah. Uh, and all of this is going into the president's daily brief. And so even though the president is out there saying, well, you know, it could have been a 400-pound guy in New Jersey or whatever yeah. it is he says, yeah. he knows damn well what it was. Does he read the daily brief? No, they read it to him, I think, for the most part, yeah. but, uh, but he, he does sit through it. So, so what does the process look like? Again, and I know you haven't been in, in government for a while, but what, is it, who's running point? Is, is, it the, is it Bolton? Is it Pompeo? Who, who, I mean, what, do you, what should we be thinking is happening internally? How does the process work from what you would estimate? Well, I think once they realized they had a uh, you know a mess on their hands, they they undoubtedly had what's called a principles committee meeting, mm -hmm. uh, and that's um, the national security agency heads, chaired by the national security advisor. The president's not in the room for that. Uh, they want to get their act together normally before they go to the president. So Bolton would have been in the chair. Pompeo would have been there, and I think one upshot of that meeting. Uh, was that they said uh, to Pompeo, or he volunteered, uh, to go out there, uh, to go to Saudi Arabia and go, go to Turkey and uh, you know, see them face-to-face, -face, eye to eye, and make sure that the Saudis understood that they had created an enormous problem for themselves and for our mutual relations. And I think, uh, from what I can see, Pompeo got that message across to them, in case they hadn't already figured it out. 
he got a lot of, he took a lot of criticism do, so you don't make so much of the meeting and the laughing and kind of the the chumminess there were there were also reports then that behind closed doors sterner more direct words were said and and is that do you are you paying kind of more attention to that part of it oh yeah i, I totally believe that behind closed doors uh pompeo you know pompeo is a tough guy hmm. uh big guy and uh, i'm sure he you know, looked this uh, young man, uh, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, in the eye and said, uh, you have any idea of what a mess you've made for yourselves and for us? Uh, and, you know, you better figure out a way out of this. Um, but whatever you do, I suspect he said, whatever you do, uh, things are not going to be the same for a while. Mm. Uh, and that's just the truth, because you have Republicans like, Marco Rubio and Lindsey Graham, uh, sounding like, uh, you know, Jamal Khashoggi was their cousin. I mean, they're, they're really bent out of shape about this, as they should be. Uh, but there's no way in hell that the Senate uh, will, con- will concur now in, the, in an arms sale to Saudi Arabia. So why, while Trump is saying, oh, we have $110 billion worth of contracts and military hardware, um, first of all, that number is wildly inflated. But secondly, none of that is ever going to happen because the Senate's not going to agree to any of it. So talk to me about this balance of, I don't know if we want to call it real politic versus morality. And that might not be exactly the right paradigm. But the other day, Richard Haas tweeted, and you may have seen this one. I know there's was, there was another one that I may want to ask you about that you responded to of his. But but this one, he, he tweeted, at some point, an amoral foreign policy becomes an immoral foreign policy. Yeah. U.S. foreign policy under uh, at real Donald Trump has reached such a point. Yeah. So for you, what should the role be of morality in foreign policy? Well, I, th- yeah, I think Richard Haas there, uh, who I almost always agree with, is an old friend and colleague. I think he's getting at the point that there is an element of amorality in any national security foreign policy. But when it gets out of control, uh, when it becomes uh, the dominant theme, uh, then that is a huge negative, especially in the case of the United States. The United States is different. Uh, We do, or at least have in the past, portrayed ourselves as a moral leader. We're the ones who stand up for human rights. We're a country not just shaped by our geography, but by our values. And if you throw those values away, which Trump has done, uh, it leaves you with uh, an identity crisis and also leaves you with less power and influence because we derived a lot of the power and influence we have in the world by our moral clarity and our moral leadership. Mm. Uh, and there's none of that left. Do we get it back at some point? I mean, you can, sure. Um, you know, different presidents have put different emphasis on uh, moral leadership. Uh, Jimmy Carter was, I think, the first one in, in my memory to, to stress it. Yeah. Uh, although, you know, all of the anti-communism uh, was about morality uh, as yeah. well. And, you know, George W. Bush uh, you know, didn't seem to be pushing morality a lot, but on the other hand, he did an enormous... Uh, act uh, in Africa uh, because of his perception of what was moral. 
which was he created the President's Emergency Fund for AIDS and HIV, which had saved tens of millions of lives in Africa uh, and continues to do so today. So let's talk about cyber uh, among the areas that you've uh, spent a great part of your career. Is Russia our biggest cyber threat today? Is China? Is North Korea? What's our biggest cyber threat today? There are four uh, national uh, cyber threats that are uh, significant. Russia, China, North Korea, and Iran, Mm. uh, all of which have significant cyber capability and have been using it against the U.S. Uh, And what's important to bear in mind is that when we say Russia, China, we're talking about their military uh, hacking teams. You know, hacking, when I got into this, was teenagers hacking for fun. Uh, it was criminals hacking for money. Uh, it was intelligence organizations hacking to collect information. Now what we see over and over again is that the big attacks around the world are done by the military. Mm. Um, the worst attack the world has ever seen was uh, last year, something that had the stupid name, not Petya. Uh, but it cost between 10 and $20 billion dollars uh, in damages to private companies around the world. And that was a Russian military attack there on Ukraine yeah. that got out of control. And most of the damage, uh, and we can talk about how significant it was, uh, was collateral damage in other countries that they didn't intend to have happen. Uh, but well, one company, Maersk uh, Shipping, uh, lost over $300 million dollars in damages, uh, and uh, 75 ports around the world shut for days because of the attack. Uh, Merck Pharmaceuticals uh, stopped making drugs for weeks uh, because of the attack. Uh, it, it struck at all sorts of companies all around the world and shut them down by wiping out their software. And that was an attack by the Russian military. Uh, that got out of control. And so when you worry about cyber threats, there are a couple of different things going through my mind. One is, do you worry about the organized uh, foreign military threats? I noticed you also, you kind of characterized them that way, which left open the possibility yeah. for rogue cyber threats, I think, is what you were... Um, no, uh, no, I think most of the major cyber threats now are state actors uh-huh. using their militaries. Okay. And then are you worried, and should we be worried, about is it an attack on our infrastructure? Do you see something that somehow circumvents our weapons operability? Is it something that knocks out, you know, the private uh, company capability? What, 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 should we, what should we be worrying about? Well, all of that, and we've seen all of that uh, happen. Uh, last week, the uh, General uh, Accounting Office, or Government Accountability Office, I guess it's called now, the GAO, yeah. uh, issued a report uh, saying that most U.S. weapons systems can be hacked by an opponent and shut off or disabled. That's chilling, yeah. particularly after you've spent a, a trillion dollars or more years buying this stuff. Uh, and we've, we've seen U.S. companies hacked their intellectual property, their secret formulas, uh, their engineering design stolen. We've seen them hacked in 
and had the software wiped out and the company shut down. We've seen companies hacked and uh, millions of dollars stolen. Uh, so there's a whole range of, uh, of activities that could occur in the in the far end of the spectrum. Uh, if you were actually in a, a heightened war state with another nation, uh, yeah, we could expect them to come after pipelines, power grids, uh, air traffic control systems, um, railroad systems, you name it. So uh, in in prepping for this conversation, I did the type of research that uh, you would expect of a professional. Um, I talked with my oldest kid about it, and yeah. uh, I t- told him that I was talking with you, and he follows all of this. Um, he, he follows it very closely. And um, he wondered, do you foresee the creation of an international standards for cyber warfare? And as I was talking to him about it, and this is part of what made me ask you about the, the rogue player, and given that you are mostly focused on state-sponsored, even military-sponsored um, cyber warfare efforts, it made me think, okay, well, you know, that, that's actually, you know, that question is, is something I'm, I'm curious about. I mean, is, is, do you foresee a creation of international standards for cyber warfare, something like an arms control or rules of acceptable conduct? Yeah, I've been pushing for that for, for over a decade. We have something called the Budapest Convention, which is a cyber crime treaty. Mm-hmm. Uh, Russia and China are not members of it. They could be, and then they're not. Uh, so it's not terribly effective, and it doesn't really have teeth. Uh, but it does lay down standards uh, for cyber crime, and some military activity would fall under that. We also have, you know, the long-standing international rules of war, uh, which are a treaty, and pretty much every country has signed up to them. It says things like, don't attack hospitals, uh, don't intentionally attack civilians. Now, those apply whether the weapon uh, is a cyber weapon uh, or, uh, or a conventional bomb. But I would like to see arms control. I would like to see a, a group of nations get together, uh, like-minded nations, and say, um, we're not going to do the following things, and if anybody else does, uh, we will act in unison uh, to impose economic sanctions on them. Uh, I think that would be very helpful. So let's talk a little bit about uh, your podcast and about Future State, which you describe as a series of discussions on the, quote, issues Americans should be talking about before we vote. Uh, We vote in just a couple of weeks. What should we be talking about? Well, we've talked to a number of people on the podcast. Uh, We talked to Madeleine Albright uh, about her new book, um, uh, The Rise of Fascism. Uh, And... In her book, she does the history of fascism and and fascism around the world today. She never talks about the U.S. And I asked her, uh, you know, why is that? And she said, well, I think the the parallels are pretty clear. I didn't want to hit you over the head with it. I wanted you to draw your own conclusions. Uh, But there are things that happened uh, in other countries when fascism was on the rise, like uh, attacks on the media, attacks on law enforcement, uh, attacks on the court systems, uh, all of which we see happening in our country today. Uh, we have another uh, podcast. It's called Assault on the Media. 
uh, with two uh, veteran investigative reporters yeah. uh, that talked about the chilling effect uh, on investigative journalism that the White House can have when uh, the major TV uh, outlets are owned by larger corporations that are subject to economic pressure from the White House. So we're talking about issues like that. We're also talking about things that in a normal election uh, you'd get around to, foreign policy issues, national security issues, uh, none of which seem to be on the agenda in our discussions because we're all following whatever bright, shiny object Trump throws into the news pit that day. So on the fascism part and on the state of our democracy, um, because I think that's uh, – um, you know, that's one of the things that you, uh, you know, focus on as well, I, I think is one of the underpinnings of, uh, you know, of your podcast and, and why you're doing it. And I, I don't mean this as a, a setup for sarcasm or, or, or anything. I don't mean to be, be glib. What's happening, do you view? I mean, you, you've, you've spent a career in government. You've worked for Republican presidents. You worked for Democratic presidents. What's happening? Why, why do you see such a divide where on the one side there's, there's a group that sees these rising risks that Madeleine Albright wrote about, um, and then there are others who uh, either don't see it or choose to look a different direction um, but are focused on, on other things. They will say that they are focused on uh, the economy. They're focused on lowest unemployment. They're focused on the judicial branch. Um, what do you make of the split? Well, I think you've got to go back to the mid-90s. Um, probably earlier than that, but at least the mid-90s. We've had a tendency on the part of largely the Republicans, but, but to some extent both parties, um, to do whatever it takes to be in control. Uh, in control of each house and Congress and control of the White House and to build permanent mechanisms uh, so that they're in control permanently. Uh, and in course of doing that, uh, in the course of doing that, they've worried more uh, about manipulating uh, voting blocks uh, than they've worried about governing uh, and worried about the... And it used to be, I hate to say corny and trite things like this, but it used to be, you got elected and you went into government because you wanted to make the place better. You wanted to make the country better. Yeah. You wanted to solve problems. Uh, and somehow it's gotten to be, oh, to hell with the problems. Let's just uh, do whatever we have to do to stay in power uh, and to get more power. Uh, and then there's the insidious influence of money in all of this. Uh, after the Citizens United Supreme Court case, yeah. uh, where there's all sorts of unlimited money um, going into to politics. And so, you know, uh, Sheldon Adelson, yep. uh, a casino owner in Las Vegas, uh, can have more influence uh, than millions of Americans uh, because he's willing to throw a lot of money into the electoral process. Um, so there's all of that. And then you inject on top of that uh, Russian interference uh, designed to create division, designed to heighten, uh, amplify uh, our own divisions, uh, and you get a mess. Do you see it that way? It, 
what I mean is, I, I imagine that somebody like you, the the roles that you have played in government, and then you see just just the point that you were just making about the 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 intent to create internal division, and it's got to look to you. I'm assuming, like out of a a defense, you know, playbook. It's like it's like how to sow discontent. 101 is what it, it, it kind of feels like. And only this time, maybe not only this time, but, but, and it's happening to us. Is, do you, do you see it that way? I mean, do you look at the things that are being reported and the things that, that, that come out and you're like, yep, that's what you do. That if you're trying to di- sow discontent in a foreign country, uh, you start with step A and then you go to step B and step C and yep, they're following the playbook. Yeah, they are following a playbook. They're following a playbook that, frankly, the Russians have been using mm. for decades uh, back through the Soviet Union. Yeah. The difference is it's a lot easier, it's a lot cheaper, and it's a lot more effective now uh, if you do this hybrid war, this blended war, that <clears throat> uses hacking uh, and uses online disinformation. Um Russians have been doing disinformation forever. Now they can do it very easily and very effectively because of the Internet and social media. Uh, so, yeah, it's an old playbook, uh, but it's much more effective right now. So your quote was, um, you, you said, the, the nature of our democracy is on the ballot. Um, I don't. I assume, I mean, it doesn't feel to me like this is something that gets resolved in a single election. What's your best hope of what comes out of this election? Well, I think what we need when we've got the runaway presidency like this, a guy who is not paying any attention to laws or morals or traditions or norms, uh, what you need is at least one house, if not both houses of Congress, to play their role, their constitutional role, of checks and balances. Uh, And I thought, frankly, uh, the Republicans would do that Uh, because, you know, they most of the Republicans in the Congress don't like Trump. Uh, They weren't for him in the the primaries. Uh, And I thought they had some some backbone. Uh, And when he he and his cabinet did things that were egregious, they would stand up to them. Um, They have no backbone. Uh, It's appalling. Uh, you know, the Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, uh, said his whole career was about balancing the budget and reducing the deficit. And then Trump said, uh, oh, the hell with that. Uh, we're going to blow up the deficit uh, with tax cuts uh, for the rich and for corporations. And Ryan rolled over. Uh, so I think those people uh, like him have to be replaced. Uh, there has to be a Democratic House and, and perhaps a Democratic Senate uh, to put brakes on on Trump, or there, he will continue to erode our democracy. And just to close out, Dick, um, you have worked inside government at incredibly senior levels. Uh, you knew at one point, I assume, nearly every secret we must have had um, at, at those times. Um, you know the bureaucracy. Is there a deep state? Well, I don't know. Deep states mean different things to different people. Uh, it's a term I never heard when I was in the, <laughs> the government or when I was part of what the, the deep state was. I never heard that phrase. Um, is there a deep state? There is a um, career cadre uh, 
uh, of civil servants, foreign service officers, military officers, intelligence officers, law enforcement officials, career people uh, like I was, uh, who worked for Republicans, who worked for Democrats. Uh, no matter who was in in charge, the the career people are there. Uh, if if by deep state you mean them, the career people, yeah, they're there. Thank God they're there. Uh, nothing would work without them. Uh, are they trying to subvert the president, and is that wrong? Um, no, I think they're trying to enforce the laws, uh, and uh, thank God they are. Dick, thank you. Uh, thank you for the conversation and continued good luck. Future State is a 10-show run, I believe. Um, right. are, there, are there plans for a future one? And this is really just for me to prepare, you know, defenses, you know, to understand. <laughs> I, I, I think we will probably uh, come back in February. I mean, we're getting decent numbers uh, for a brand new thing, and uh, it's probably enough to try another, you know, ten or twelve weeks in in, in the winter. Good for you. Uh, well, it's a it's a great show, um, and I do I would encourage folks to uh, subscribe. Um, and and listen, you've had some just outstanding guests. I mean, you kind of hinted at uh, some of them, but. Uh, um, Susan Rice. I mean, you mentioned Madeleine Albright, Bill Clinton. Uh, you had Brian Ross. Um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, and the, the recent show on, uh, uh, nuclear war. I think that was the recent one, wasn't it? Um, yeah, the nuclear war is this week. Cyber war is the week after that. And then we've got, uh, Congressman, uh, Seth Moulton, yeah. uh, sort of the young Turk of the Democratic Party. Uh, and then Governor Terry McAuliffe, uh, who is, you know, possibly going to run for president. So it, uh, it ends with a bang. Super. Well, thank you. Good luck with it, and uh, thank you for your time. Okay, thank you. That was my conversation with Richard Clark. Want more from Richard? A reminder to sign up for my free newsletter at chrisreback.com. It has bonus insights from him on the question, what keeps you up at night? I also hope to see you at Harvard on October 26th. My thanks to Dick for the conversation and you for listening. I'm Chris Reback. I'll talk with you soon. Thank you.